Welcome to the second series of the podcast, Rewired. Much has happened since series one in the debate around a universal basic income grant in South Africa. In this series, we unpack some of the debates that have developed. We look at the politics behind the scenes, the numbers that people are arguing about, and we invite captains of industry, intellectuals, academics, and activists to put forward the ideas why the basic income grant is the one policy that we need to take us from where we are as a country to where we need to be. Join me, Isabel Fry, on Rewired, the podcast of choice that allows you to be part of the conversation on a basic income grant. So why is there the renewed interest in the basic income grant? Um, in your book, you trace the fact that they have been, um, they've been sort of waves of interest, um, and they sort of flex and wane. But what are the prevailing conditions do you think that's made it not just in South Africa, but globally something which many of us are talking about? Such an interesting story that because if you look at the past, say, 100 years or so on, the idea of a basic income, whether it was called that, which is, of course, another issue, but the basic idea of it, that, that citizens, by way of being citizens or residents in the country, have an entitlement to some kind of income support. It goes back several hundred years, in fact. But over the past 100 years, it's tended to to ebb and wane, often in line with the strength of organized workers' movements. So you find periods, often decades long, where workers' movements are strong. So we go from the 1930s, I'm talking globally now, 1930s, 40s, 50s, where the welfare states of, of law were being assembled, certainly in the industrialized world, and bits and pieces of it, even in South Africa. Here it is, of course, only accessible to whites, but this is what was built here, welfare state for whites. Um, this is a period when the basic income demand is not on people's radar. Because many of the, many of the entitlements that would be won through an, uh, a basic income grant were being won through other means. And this was through work, full employment. You get paid well. You have a union that defends and pushes your demands and wins them on many days of the week. Now, since the 19, late 1970s, 80s, globally, that trend started to shift. We saw concerted attacks on, on workers' movements in the industrialized world, successfully in the UK and in the US especially, and gradually making its way into the other major economies. In South Africa, we were somewhat of an exception because of our particular uh, political and historical trajectory. But we're at a place now where we have workers' movements who are not nearly as strong, not nearly as capable of pressing and winning their demands as they were even 15 years ago. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's it's emerged again. The other reason is, is, a, is an absolutely obvious one. It's just the sheer scale of need, the sheer desperate scale of need. And I think people uh, who are thinking ahead more than their next round of, of shareholder reports are recognizing that there is a certain unsustainability that has to be confronted here, that, that this doesn't continue um, just as long as you can use sellotape and string to hold the society together, something has to change. Which is interesting because you've been sort of setting up the list of characters for this this new engagement. You mentioned business, big business, and, and how it's always looking for new markets. And, and those might, if you drive around anywhere in South Africa, you see the vast numbers of people living in poverty who are not a market. They don't have disposable income. 
But we also see the fragmentation of the formal workplace and the huge rise in informality. I mean, in Nigeria, 95% of those people defined as employed are working in the informal economy. So you don't have that usual, that, that traditional sense of employer, state, employee. Um, and you have the one-on-one -on -one relationships between uh, an, a worker for sort of own account, uh, self-employed, and both the, the state and, and their market. That being said, what would you see as being critical components for moving forward a fiscally funded basic income grant. Hein, looking at the idea of the changing nature of the world of work, one concern that people have is that maybe a basic income grant speaks to a formal economy. But if we look to the dynamics within the informal economy, it becomes a little too challenging to see how lines of distribution can work. You know, one of the things that I find really exciting about the concept is that not only does it force us to think afresh about what constitutes work, once we understand that wage work cannot be the only basis upon which money and income is distributed in society, you start thinking differently. The work we do when we, when we as, as neighbors help each other out, it's work. We've spent our Sunday helping somebody hammering nails on, you know, on their roof. That's work. It, it gets you into a world where you start understanding that, that what makes us valuable and productive in society is actually so much wider, so much more expansive than this vision that we have is the only thing that justifies me earning money and feeling a rightful uh, entitlement to support from anybody else is if I work. And that I think is an absolutely liberating thing to start understanding because it merely reflects reality. We just don't, we're just not calling it work. We call it other things. That's the one thing I think is, is very useful about, about the shift that the UBI demand can encourage us to make. The other is we tend to think when we talk about the benefits of a UBI, and I count myself amongst this we, um, we tend to want to show, oh, what is it going to do for gross domestic product? Of course, you have claims that it's going to cause the economy to shrink. We can see some economists certainly doing econometrics, claiming that it's, it will in fact have a, uh, a shrinking effect on growth in South Africa. I dispute those, those findings, but that's another story. What we forget though, um, is that the, the real impact here is often going to be at local level. It's going to be at community level. And it's at this level that the, our, our state, and I'm not, I'm not singling it out as being particularly inept at this, but it's proving to have a bit of a struggle in supporting people in the ways that, that they deserve and need. Increasingly as climate change proceeds in our country, an arid country where we do not have enough rain and we'll have more and more prolonged droughts, uh, more and more disrupted crops, food prices spiraling and dropping and spiraling and dropping. Just the mere basics of life in poor communities is going to come under ever increasing pres uh, pressure. And this is a, this is a trend which I, th I think we can with absolute certainty predict is going to happen. So whatever we can introduce, and I see a UBI as one of those factors that can build resilience in ways that people choose to build resilience as well. People are aware of what happens in their community and what is needed there. This is often a process of democratic argument and debate, long nights sitting in meetings. We don't all like it, but it is a process that our, our history and political traditions have left us with. We know how to do that. 
And it's there that I think the UBI's most most profound impact is likely to be. So UBI as a, a central pillar to just transitions in a way that enables people to define and realize their own futures, Absolutely. realities and at, futures. At the very minimum to try and protect their, their basic means for life or to, to, to restock it. Um, and it, it goes on as simply as putting food on the table, growing your own food and so on. It's the, the, the empirical evidence for what small amounts of money enable people to do is absolutely indisputable. It does not get spent on tobacco, drugs, and cigarettes. There is absolutely no evidence for this, and anybody who claims otherwise should show me the evidence. So, Hein, I want to take you to a very direct question, value of a UBI. In research that we've done at SPY, we argue that in addition to it not being conditional, you need to look at an amount that is sufficient to both in meet people's basic needs, but also enable that growth, that ability to move beyond, to realize that potential that you've been talking about. What is your view on where the value of a critical UBI should be? You can answer the question in a in a utopian way, and for me, it would be enough to cover your basic expenses and needs. I can't put a round figure uh, to that for you. That would be the ideal. I'm, I'm not a complete uh, idiot, so I don't expect that to be around the corner or perhaps even in my lifetime. Um, in answering the question of what an acceptable amount would be, we're dealing with trade-offs, quite obviously. We're dealing with what we deem is affordable fiscally um, and there are huge debates around what that threshold might be. And on the other side is what is it that people need has to be the, the counterbalancing figure that we use there. This has to be, I think, debated in a much more sincere and open-minded way than it has been in South Africa. We find at the moment a, um, a rather haughty position being struck, especially by the National Treasury and, and folk who are, are quite implacably opposed to the idea of a universal basic income, that this is not something we can afford and that um, we it essentially puts us at fiscally at risk. It's a, a destabilizing intervention which is not needed. And we see all sorts of numbers getting, getting thrown about to prove that case. I, I don't believe we've had a proper adult grown-up eye-to-eye debate around this yet in South Africa, and we need to have it. Um, and we will, I'm absolutely sure about that. To fix the kind of amount that we need, if we were to fix it to the food poverty line, around 624 rands a month right now, it's, it's a sad figure to be using, to say that's enough. Um, but it, I think it's a reasonable one. And the the calculations that have been done by the Institute for Economic Justice, for example, you can make a very clear case. We can't afford that. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we were told quite emphatically by many of the same opponents uh, to a UBI that two interventions were absolutely unaffordable. Unaffordable. One of them was, of course, the basic income grant of the, of the early 2000s. Well, we all know what happened within five years. We had social grants uh, extended and gradually expanding in 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 the uh, people number of people eligible for them as well. It proved to be. A, eminently affordable. We also know that it, our levels of poverty would be inestimably worse than they are right now were it not for these grants. And that taught me that often what we say is unaffordable um, with a sort of fiscal concern driving that statement is a political statement that we're making. We, we're saying we don't think this is important enough to be made affordable. 
The other thing that was unaffordable and became affordable was free HIV treatment. We were told again and again that this is unaffordable. We run the biggest treatment program in the world, funded mostly domestically. One of the few countries in the world, certainly in the South, that pays for their own treatment. And ironically, both of those are instances which I, if I were president, if I were in cabinet, I would claim as victories on a regular basis, but instead they're almost sort of it's shushed a, up. This is as sort, if of a grudging, yeah. a sort of a grudging uh, reflection. Yeah, it's true. The lesson for me is that the the statement that a UBI is unaffordable, I think, is an, is an undefensible statement or an indefensible statement. It's, there, there, are so many, there are so many variables that first have to be confronted before one can make that statement. Um, the one I just touched on, it is what do, you, what do you regard as being important enough to find money for? And that's a political decision. That's why the framing of the demand is so important and it's why it's so important that it's not just a decision taken by technocrats. The demand for a UBI has to be something that emerges from mobilization, popular organizations, civil society, pushing and demanding it because they will have to defend it. And that's one of the risks of a UBI. It doesn't stay the way necessarily it was designed in the beginning. We can talk about that in a minute if you want. So I, I think this this political, the, the political uh, variant, the con- political conditions for UBI are fundamentally important. When we come to what's affordable in terms of counting the pennies and the pounds, that's these are debates which we have to have in a, in a rigorous and open-minded way. And sadly, it seems, as you touched on, that Treasury is really not that keen. I mean, at SPY, we've published a number of papers where we've identified 10 sources that could be touched on. But that takes me to the elephant in the room, or is it the million-dollar question? Although the evidence mounts up in favor of the positive changes that a basic income grant could do, although the evidence mounts up about the affordability, though the evidence mounts on a daily basis about people's growing needs, and it seems that the allies are growing. I get asked many times, despite this, we don't have a basic income grant, and government is saying no. From your perspective, and you've been living outside of the country for a couple of years, but you've also got a number of decades of analysis um, up your sleeve. Why do you think that despite all of those things, we still are not talking seriously about the implementation, the rollout of a basic income grant starting in 2023. You know, it's such a rush, such a rich uh, discussion to have. I, I can try and touch on maybe three points that I think are salient. The one is ideological. It's, it's, it's the ideas that shape how we decide what types of change we're living willing to try and make, what risks we're willing to try and take. And I'll say this, a UBI is not risk-free. And I think we should talk about that in a second. That ideological dimension, I think, is is it's difficult to dispute that it is shaped by 40 years of neoliberal capitalism. And I think that very much shapes um, our thinking at an individual level. At an institutional level, if you want to talk about the National Treasury, uh, the Reserve Bank, I would toss in um, with this this sort of antipathy towards the idea of a UBI. This, of course, takes much more sophisticated forms, but there are certain precepts, certain basic principles of how a a stable economy is managed in today's world, which are very much informed and shaped by the principles of neoliberal 
capitalism as well. And these are fundamentally increasingly tied to the, the needs of financial capitalism, which is becoming over the past 20 years an enormously large and powerful presence in the South African economy. The finance sector in South Africa constituted just shy of one quarter of GDP. It provides, by the way, about 2% of unemployment, of, of employment yeah. rather. So it doesn't produce jobs. It makes money, but it has and has developed. This is not just us globally, inordinate power, the ability to shape policy, uh, especially macroeconomic policy, the access to, to finance, the way finances, financial capital is, is able to exit and enter countries, the terms on which it does so. And of course, the macroeconomic sort of fundamentals. I'm not arguing that we should have some completely laissez-faire attitude towards debt levels and so on. But there are there are very important debates amongst people who know more about these issues than I do about what level of debt to the GDP constitutes a risk in what type of society. Um, th- there's no there's no single threshold that anybody can set and say once you step over this you're in trouble. It depends on your your economy's structure and the ways in which you're integrated into the global system. So there's institutionally I think there's a great there's a great hangover, an ideological hangover of, of assumptions, truths. I'm sure the people who attach themselves to these, these principles would say that shapes what's deemed acceptable risks, what's deemed acceptable changes in policy right now. And, and the forces behind that. And I, and I, I would add this again. These are not just individual technocrats who are very smart people who know their business, right? But there are political forces behind that. By political, I mean the ways in which financial capitalist entities are able to exert themselves politically, make their, make their needs and, and, and their demands known. I think we, we cannot discount the fact that that is that explains partly why we have the type of economic policies and why we stuck to them for so long, despite their evident failure to deliver what they said they deliver. We haven't delivered these, growth. And yet these forces are invisible. They're not at NEDLAC. They're not in Parliament. They are at a sort of global level of fund administration it's, and profit. Exactly. It's almost, it, it, it's exerted amorphously in many ways. It's, it's, in some ways it exists in our own heads. It's our, it's our expectation of what our next move will trigger. In financial markets, in financial markets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm not pretending that this is just sheerly, uh, some sort of specter, some ghostly presence that doesn't really exist. Of course, it has real presence in, in markets. Um, so that's the second thing I think that explains the, the, uh, sort of lack of traction in, in terms of policy change that the UBI has had so far. The last one, frankly, is, is it's about convincing ordinary people that we need this as well. I don't think we can deny the fact that many, many South Africans, we have studies and surveys showing this, believe that you should work in order to get some entitlement. That they, that they, we are fundamentally attached to this idea that that is your route into earning a just uh, a meaningful and respectful place where you have claims on the state, where you have claims on others. And it's it's very difficult to simply get beyond that to dislodge mm. that that set of beliefs because it's very much attached with with how we see ourselves like what makes me a worthy member of society and it's not an illusion it's not a myth either like we want to believe that we are that we are productive and contributing members of society the last thing i think i'd add to that is i'm going to come back to the risk 
issue here about a UBI because I, I think it's I've I've talked up a UBI here. The thing that worries me about it is about this demand. Were it to be achieved, is that were it to be seen as as a as a tool, as a as a policy fix for an evident crisis, which is people are not able to put food in their tables, and the misery and the humiliation and the and the trauma that that generates in, in people's daily lives, that it's a way to deal with that problem while we keep trying to grow the economy and grow jobs and continue with the same sort of model uh, that we've inherited from the 20th century. If it's seen as a standalone, a silver bullet, um, I think we are going to find ourselves in a situation where it can very easily be captured and retooled into something else. Now, I said right at the beginning that I see a UBI as being in addition to a series of social wage entitlements, free healthcare, free education, you can make the list as you wish. And you're then confronted with the choice, we'll have to cut something else. These are all political battles that have to get fought, right? But those other things are maybe the things that you can get away with politically. We make, we see this in the UK, for example, you make things just a little more difficult, a little less accessible. You're cutting the budgets for a particular social service. Less and less people use it and so on. Here we definitely, I think, would see some of the entitlements that we, that we regard as part of our, the success of post-apartheid South Africa, free healthcare, free education, primary school level at least, um, being potentially on the chopping block. If there's that physical decision that has to be made, which one goes? Because something has to go. So unless we have that broader macroeconomic discussion about what is affordable and, and how the financing would work, we would see us robbing Peter to pay Paul. Absolutely. Or as Moletzi Mbeki says about grants, um, basically buying off opposition to an untenable system. Absolutely. And that, that for me is, it's not just the political risk, but it's, it's, a uh, it's a risk that I think uh, it essentially means that we sacrifice the many, many potential transformative, liberating aspects of a UBI. Um, so for me, fundamentally, this is not a demand which I think can be won or defended properly without social and political mobilization. It is not a, it's not a, a switch to be thrown in government and the state. I, I would worry if that's how we get a UBI because I do not think that there's enough at the moment enough social and political support to defend it against the kind of capturing and 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 distortion that it's vulnerable to. And it, it for me it's it's why this framing this entire debate about what what work's place is in our society, what it on what basis we have an entitlement or a claim to income and other support in society, why these are so important. We have to, this is a, this is a rich society-wide debate that has to be engaged in. And we know that it is happening because if you look at the kind of survey results from five years ago against two years ago about the percentage of South Africans who support the idea of a UBI, it is of a different order. We now have at least half of South Africans when polled are willing to support a UBI. That was not the case in 2017, 2018. So we're on the road, I think, to this, but it's going to be a process, um, which I'm pretty sure we will we will end up with something that we can feel proud of in the next decade. I'm quite sure of that. 
Hein, thank you so much for that. Thank you for publishing your book because you've certainly got a lot of people talking. And we hope that this podcast will also get some people thinking and from thinking to talking. So thank you and um, enjoy the rest of your stay in South Africa. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.